welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 57, an interview with Max Howell of T.xyz. Max is the third Web3 guest. See episode 37 and 56 for the other two. He has some notoriety as the founder of the Brew repository. That's relevant here because T is a next-generation Web3 package repository toolkit that developers can use to build properly incentivized open-source ecosystems. It's a wildly disruptive vision of how we can make open source software more equitable, more secure, and more innovative. T's published a white paper about how they intend to build a new layer one blockchain, but T's also a well-funded startup that's making a two-year roadmap to make all this Web3 tokenized repository ecosystem stuff a reality. If you're like me, some of this blockchain jargon may go over your head. For example, what's the difference between proof of work and proof of stake? What's a DAO? What are Cosmos and Polkadot? My advice is just go along with the jargon, hit pause, and do some Googling in the background. With that said, without further ado, let's cut over to the interview with Max. Big welcome to Max Howell, CEO of T-Inc., and renowned founder of Homebrew, the ubiquitous package manager for macOS. Max, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here. You mentioned in a previous podcast that you weren't a computer science major as an undergraduate. Maybe before we dive into Web3 and all the business model stuff, you could tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the tech business and open source. Sure thing. So I have a chemistry degree. It's a British master's, uh, which means it's four years and not as prestigious as a US master's. That came from uh, thinking I wanted to do science. I think I was unduly influenced by all the 80s movies where scientists were changing the world and saving the world and being cool in general. And uh, I did a year in chemistry in the lab before, uh, well, in fact, it was like three months in. Three months in, I was like, I can't do this. It was boring. I stuck it out for another nine months and then I quit. I was like, I got to figure out something else to do with myself. And uh, programming had always been a hobby. My dad had introduced it to me when I was six and I'd done a bunch of programming here and there as, as a hobbyist and uh, never considered it for a career. Partly because when I went to the career fair as a 17 year old and I met some programmers there, they were just like the geekiest people I'd ever met. And I was like, oh my God, I don't want to be like that. But I fell back into it. After quitting the, the job and moving back in with my parents and not really knowing what to do, I was like in this depressed funk. And then I found open source. I installed Linux and I found the communities that were, in, uh, are out there for open source. And this was back in like 2003, 2004 and fell in love with it. Basically, uh, started making apps, got involved with, uh, a bunch of apps on desktop Linux, worked with KDE contributed a bunch to KDE. And then that got me uh, a career in the industry. I found this job in London. They contacted me because of the work I'd been doing on this music player called Amarok. And uh, that got me into it. So one more warm-up question. What's your definition of Web3? For example, like what features distinguish a Web2 piece of software from a Web3 piece of software? Web3 is just the natural evolution of how the internet has gone. And I think Web2 especially, we lost, lost the way a bit. If we go back to where the web came from, where the internet came from, what it was about, it was all open source at the beginning. Everything about how it was developed was decentralized 
and not monetized and for the benefit of everybody by putting information out there, making open APIs and programmable interfaces and small tools that could interact with each other and create a network for humanity. And uh, Web3 really for me is just an acknowledgement that we lost our way with Web2 and then we centralized everything and we gave too many big companies too much power and control over how it's built uh, even open source and like maybe even especially open source. Like I don't like the way open source is now mostly developed by companies. Like, all the big projects, they either purchase, well, they hire, we won't say purchase. They hire the developers who work on these important projects. And then uh, that company then like controls it essentially. But a lot, you know, I, I believe that they don't intend to do malicious things with these projects. But like at the end of the day, I don't trust Microsoft, Google, Facebook, etc., to build this essential infrastructure that makes the internet work. So I love the fact that Web3 is also returning to some sort of roots movement with open source where people are building themselves. And like tokenization is part of the reason that that's possible. You don't need a company to support you. You know, Tim Berners-Lee recently said something like, my decentralized web doesn't need blockchain. And because the internet was already pretty decentralized and maybe even still is with like a billion domains and millions of autonomous web servers. I, I get the, the ethos and the aspiration of Web3 that you're expressing, but is there a technology underpinnings or infrastructure that's available in Web3 that wasn't in Web2? What makes a Web3 app? We're developers and engineers, and we love to like define things precisely. But you know, I don't think these things can be defined that precisely. And like Tim Berners Lee, like probably his internet still is like as decentralized as it was initially, because he's probably still using all these Web One tools and uh, hasn't really migrated. I doubt he has a Facebook account or anything like that. But for the vast majority of us, we're using these highly centralized chunks of the internet that have massive sandboxes around them, and uh, that that's what we need to be working on to get rid of. You know, blockchain is a part of Web3 because that was the uh, the ingenious invention that allowed us to understand that we can make databases that are decentralized, where we were struggling to do that. And, you know, a lot of people still don't think it's that important, but, you know, the recent crypto crash, it was pretty impressive how DeFi stood up while all these centralized systems collapsed. And so, you know, for me, that means that you don't even need to prove that Web3 is the way forwards. It's just going to prove itself as uh, Web2 continues to have issues with centralization. Before we go down the blockchain rabbit hole, at a high level, T Inc. is a for-profit company. What is the basic plan for T to monetize? Is it going to be a strategy similar to other Web3 startups? Yeah, so we're a well-funded startup and we're currently raising a little more. Like Our intention is to give ourselves like two to three years of runway so that we can build a kick-ass suite of products, which also allow for the open source ecosystem to be remunerated. Like after that, uh, essentially, we see the package manager component of what we're offering as a form of an app store. And we see ways that we can like monetize you know, it sounds terrible to say we're monetizing open source and that, that isn't what we're doing. Like, We're not changing the nature of open source at T. It's important that we emphasize that fact. Uh, you can't. You can't change something that's so established 25, 30 years, uh, even more, uh, that it's existed as like 100% free and everything about what we're doing is still free. And our remuneration system, uh, which we'll talk about later, I've no doubt, uh, understands that. And that, that's a key part of it. 
And so any monetization we apply on top of that would be an opt-in kind of way of doing things where we uh, allow like teams and enterprises and businesses that are using the tea product suite to gain extra value out of the fact that they're a business and that they need uh, systems that help their dev employees to work more effectively. Uh, so we have a number of ideas there, but you know they're, they're under wraps currently still. Why a tea blockchain and not a tea DAO? Or is there also a DAO? Yeah, there, there will also be a DAO. We need some kind of blockchain to record the data. Essentially, we're putting a, the package registry, and I say the, because currently there's three, 400 different package managers out there. The vast majority of them are duplicating the same data time and again. The history of the internet and open source and software technologies is full of uh, examples where like people cobble together systems because it just about works for now. And then eventually someone figures out how to make it more cohesive, bring it all together, and then like provided the solution is correct, it gets adopted. So we're trying to do that. We're making a decentralized blockchain-based package registry. Everyone who maintains open source will be able to publish their releases into it, their own private keys. As a result, deduplicate all of that, but also allow you know, for the T remuneration system. The T protocol algorithmically defines the governance and payments in this package ecosystem. And it seems like that's very scalable and it's sort of free of subjectivity. Do you think that other open source projects, I guess, besides package managers, might define protocols that model value in their ecosystems by using metrics different than what you used? I expect so. For me, this is a great use of the technology. We're going to start seeing more and more people and projects doing uh, things like this. So there was one, um, what's it called? Someone was trying to replace Steam, essentially, with a similar kind of model, blockchain-based licenses that you put in the uh, in the chain for releases of your games, essentially. And then, you know, it's just understanding that you put an NFT out there and you direct token towards that nft based on who owns it It, like people have shy away from uh making new layer ones but i think that doesn't really make sense like we have like great tools nowadays for building new layer ones and essentially just each one's its own like specific database remember when i worked at last firm this music startup in london and uh we replaced the entire database with a completely custom model because it was impossible at the time with like the way computers were at least then you know this is before cloud infrastructure was awfully common to get enough performance out of the type of data that was used there having your own blockchain for your specific use case you know you've got to be able to bridge the tokens in order for it to be generally useful to lots of people but we're going to see more and more of that. And T, I think, is a good example. And I'm hoping that it's going to cause people who are skeptical about Web3 technologies and blockchain especially to reconsider that skepticism when they see what we're doing and how like we do have good intention. Like You uh, asked who our customers were. And for me, they're the people who are not paying us. They're the open source ecosystem, package maintainers, and uh, package consumers who are not going to directly be paying us in any manner, or even indirectly, in fact, based on how our model is going to work. We believe in creating solutions that are going to improve the open source ecosystem because we're all super passionate at T about open source and ensuring that it thrives, thrives in a way that currently it's it's remarkable to me that open source exists (laughs) and that it works. So in the T ecosystem, you mentioned that we have package maintainers and we have package developers. We have end users, people installing packages, and we also have package testers. 
So those are sort of the the roles or the actors within the ecosystem that I've sort of figured out. And based on your role, your GitHub usage may differ. You know, in this ecosystem where you've defined these actors, how do you figure out how value is distributed between them? Well, we're still fleshing out the specifics. We're doing a yellow paper right now on how specifically the value will be, what percentages of things. But as a package maintainer, you release packages. Like Initially, you'll have a creator NFT that you put into our blockchain that indicates that there's a new open source package, and then each release is its own NFT. And so you put those out there, and you have to stake a little bit of value to say that you are supporting this package and that you are guaranteeing the security of the package and that you're guaranteeing that the semantic versions of the package are correct. Like uh, A lot of the things we're going to try and do with this technology is not just remunerate open source, but also increase the robustness of the ecosystem. Open source is messy right now, and things break all the time. And that's partly because there's no uh, incentive, really, beyond what is best for the rest of the open source ecosystem, kind of moral imperative to do a good job. Uh, so the maintainers are going to release those NFTs. And we, we understand that a lot of projects are more than one person, and we expect to either build ourselves a bunch of DAO tooling so that each project can have its own DAO, which runs on top of the T-token, or... Uh, for the open source ecosystem to step up and do that. Like everything we're doing, we're coming at it with the attitude that we have to build things that are flexible and composable so that the open source ecosystem can build on top of what we're building. So the maintainers do that. And then there's tea tasters. Tasters are going to be people who are, they're staking against packages in the graph for a start. We're calling this steeping, where people are staking value against a package, several other packages, etc. And then as a result, they're also staking value against all of the dependencies of those packages. So if you stake against log4j, for example, a good example that we use regularly, then all log4j's dependencies will also receive, will be staked against effectively. And then like the key part of our system is that stake rewards that are done per epoch, probably 24 hours, are distributed to the packages that are staked, as well as the people staking. So there's a, a, an incentive for the stakers like in a normal proof-of-stake type system. So democratically, I, I think everyone appreciates that the package maintainers get a vote. But if an organization wants to financially contribute, is there a way for you to contribute to the governance? So we're going to have a DAO, which will have governance based on ownership of the token, or at least have some some of these votes be strictly for package maintainers rather than like other people with vested interests outside of that. The DAO will be deciding on slashing events that we're intending to have to increase the security of the open source ecosystem overall. So uh, if your package has a security exploit, then you can expect to be slashed. If you violate semantic versioning, which can break the internet, then you can expect to get slashed. And the DAO is responsible for receiving the votes from those who are participating and creating a a larger vote with the rest other token holders. Do you see operating system vendors adopting T? I can see them certainly transitioning to using our package graph instead of their own. That's one of the things that I want the packaging ecosystem to do. This is duplicated data. Sometimes it's duplicated for good reason, but we can be like the original resource they use to figure out what versions of 
tool X and what dependencies tool X has, etc. Now, the way I'm building T, it is very feasible for it to be the only package manager a Linux distribution uses. Uh, we're packaging everything all the way down, uh, not including libc, everything up above that. But I designed this thing to be more, more of a developer tool than a system operations tool or a DevOps tool. Now, like it's it's an exciting tool in that one of the things I'm doing with it is uh, much like Git was released as essentially a set of primitives that made it possible to build a version control system. But especially when it was initially released, it was not a very good version control system. But part of the reason it took a while to catch on is because the user experience was bad and it's only gotten better in the last five, six years, I'd say. We're releasing a tool that's essentially a set of primitives for packaging. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, and I and just like with Homebrew, I, I built it to inspire people to get involved and to contribute and to be a part of it. I'm building T in exactly the same way. And I'm hoping that the open source community is going to be super excited to use T's primitives to build essentially entirely different tools on top of that. So one thing I'd like to see is for these Linux distributions to still maintain their own package manager because it may, many times like the package manager is what defines what is different about different varieties of Linux. So I expect them to build essentially their own, but like uh, T should be like the bottom 70% of that. In, in much the way that open source has evolved over the last 30, 40 years is so people release these fundamental libraries and tools that change what is possible after that. And then they become like bricks in a tower, essentially, where after that, everything is easier and simpler and faster to build. Uh, that's, what, that's what we all love about open source, I think, and why it must be free and must be freely available and must consist of an awful lot of tools that make it as easy as possible to consume. In your package ecosystem, I didn't see anything about documentation as an actor. How do you plan on handling that? Because I think that's another one of areas in open source that needs attention. Most of what we have out there right now is just a few blog posts, tweets, and our white paper. And the white paper really only discusses the protocol, the blockchain components. So we I, we deliberately haven't gone into a lot of detail about the other parts. But what we're building at T is a suite of products which have a blockchain underpinning as the decentralized database for the package registry. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm a huge believer in documentation myself. You know, there's only there's a limit to what we can do for the open source ecosystem, we, but we are going to have a way for projects to publish their documentation into the T platform uh, in, a much, in a much nicer form. So I'm wondering about these other contributors to building quality world-class software. Is there any way for them to participate in the T ecosystem? In the white paper, we define package maintainers as being those where the token is directed or when the stake rewards come in. That, you know, is, is a vague term. Probably not, at least initially anyway, going to define it beyond that. So it goes to one wallet. But we are going to encourage and expect projects to form a DAO and distribute that token with tooling that either will write or the community will write. At that point, it's up to the project to decide how people who are doing documentation or outreach or translations. Like These are extremely important roles. I've worked on a number of large and small projects, and a lot of the time, the people who are just out there fielding support are the most important, and uh, they deserve yeah, to get some of the rewards, for sure. So we're encouraged here, but we probably won't initially, at least for version one build out any of that tooling. Like, you know, we, we 
we shouldn't be doing everything. It's not the best way for things to go. There needs to be some competition in the space where people come along and say, okay, here's some DAO tooling that is suitable for tea. And someone else will come along with something else. And then we'll see which ones gain popularity and which ones work. One of the interesting aspects of your design is that you're sort of gamifying reputation where based upon your reputation, it almost impacts your level, which could impact how much you're paid as for your contribution. Can you give us some thoughts about what were some of the pros and cons of setting up that system? For example, I think you're using GitHub stats as the basis for reputation, but can you just talk a little bit about how you came up with that idea and what are your, what are your thoughts on, on the first iteration that you're announcing? Stake rewards will be given to projects based on who is steeping those projects. So we're outsourcing that kind of decision-making to the community. There will be a curve to prevent projects getting too much because there's some that are more popular. We'll be incentivizing people to steep projects that are less popular. And to avoid gamifying that, you know, there's slashing, which can be submitted to the DAO for review if people are publishing packages that, you know, are just fake. And then dependencies will get, they have a, it's a sort of inbuilt reputation for dependencies, because if you're a dependency of four other projects, then that's proof in itself that you have a successful project that deserves to get those steeping rewards. There is a reputation system for reports for like security issues or other slashing events. And we're still working out the details of that. GitHub stats, that's solely for an initial token drop, essentially. We want to make sure that the open source community, those who actually are contributing to open, the open source that powers the internet, start off with a reasonable amount of tokens so that they can be part of the TO ecosystem. The amount will uh, be in proportion, I should think. Details not exactly worked out yet, but you have to have open source. And that's what we're doing with the, uh, the GitHub auth. I noticed that you're using an NFT. I think an NFT is issued to a package maintainer, I guess, for a certain version. Why did you use an NFT there? Well, I think it's a really good use of NFTs for a change. NFTs got a bad rap. Everything's got a little bit of a bad rap in this sector, partly because there was a lot of uh, naughtiness, shall we say, going on with JPEG-based NFTs. And like, you know, the JPEG isn't even part of the NFT. It's just a hash inside of it. But NFT is just an immutable data point, and that's what an open source release needs to be, an immutable data point. Once you've released a package, if you change it, you could be breaking like portions of the internet or portions of people's products or like introducing security issues into portions of what is the web web two internet currently. So, uh, you know, just, it's a logical use of the technology of what an NFT is. This might be displaying more of my ignorance about the blockchain level one stuff, but at the risk of that, would you say that the protocols provides a template for the smart contracts that you're going to have in your ecosystem? We'll have a bunch of smart contracts that control staking and steep rewards, but our blockchain will be EVM compatible or at least generally programmable in some manner. And we expect people to build on top of it to make open source into a, a viable career path for people. Like we haven't really talked about it, but uh, I hope that once T is up and running, some of these extremely well-paid engineers at Facebook and Google and that will quit to work on things that have actual <laughs> benefit to humanity. 
because they have ideas. They they know about open source. They could be building that actually benefits the world. Okay, one more geeky question for you. Uh, you mentioned that it's getting easier to build a level one blockchain. Can you talk about maybe some of the technology stack that you're looking at to do that? Like, what are some of the tools uh, that you're that you're considering? We're, we're still figuring it out, but like uh, our uh, choices are becoming more and more clear. I think so. Like Cosmos is great. Uh, everyone says great things about it, and uh, you know they provided great tooling so that you can build out what you need. Polkadot's also great, and so that's uh, an option for us. And we're quite interested in Near. So those, you know, those are the three main ones. I just like the way that they've understood that reusing the same kind of bricks when you're building out these tools. It's just easier to iterate when like 90% of the difficult bits are done. Like all of us who are engineers have uh, tried to build something that is a library from scratch just for fun. And you realize that there's a lot of work that goes into that. That's why open source is so valuable. Like years of bug fixing, maturity, understanding like the nuances of things that doesn't matter how many meetings you have with a team, you don't figure out until you actually build it. Blockchain's reached that level now where you can just whip one up. Like a lot of the people we've been talking to and a lot of our investors were like, don't make your own layer one. Like it's a nightmare. You'll hate yourself. Uh, it's less and less the case. Like it's still like complicated. Launching a blockchain is a lot more complicated than a lot of things that you can do in, in the cloud. It takes a lot more planning and resilience. And I'm glad that we have experienced people on staff who are going to help us with that. And you don't think that you could have done everything you need to do by just using a DAO that ran on top of an existing layer one? Yeah, probably. Like we haven't finally finished out what we're going to do. We, we haven't made any final decisions yet. So it's still possible that we'll pick one of the existing layer ones and then, you know, we're going to have a DAO, whatever. You've got to have your own DAO, though. You can't just like take someone else's. And, and that's just like, it's just a bunch of smart contracts anyway. And um, the truth is like, there's a, there's a few pieces to what we're doing that if we use our own system, it makes it possible for us to get the performance characteristics more correct. The dependency graph of all open source is 10 to 20,000 different projects with, you know, depending on what kind of layer at, like if you're in an NPM package, you could have like five to 6,000 dependencies. Figuring out the reward distribution for that, performance implications are quite interesting. And so we want to have control over that. Like, yeah, we could use the ZK uh, roll-up and all that. And maybe we still will, maybe. There's considerations we have that just make it make sense for us to consider our own. Like I was saying earlier, it's like rolling your own database. Sometimes you have to do that. It's more like just having your own instance of Postgres running. Like if you take blockchain tech and just tweak it slightly, like it's, it's only slight tweaks here. Uh, I think it makes sense for the technology. Do you think that there's any advantage to have a nonprofit entity like a government or a charitable organization might say, we really want to help pay open source developers. We're going to give this much money to it. Do you think there'd be any advantage to having maybe a nonprofit entity that's sort of a, that's attached to this? Well, our DAO will be a nonprofit entity. That's why DAOs are interesting. Uh, I wonder how how they're going to change over the next 10 years. Certainly, it's all, it's all very nascent. But like what you're describing is like sponsorship bounties, right? Uh, like Gitcoin, uh, for example. And, you know, fundamentally, I, we don't feel that sponsorship or bounties are functional for funding open source. So open source is a bunch of people who have passion and need a, you know, a, a steady income. They don't, they don't want to have to wait for people to post bounties and then accept them. 
get an unsteady income in that respect or and sponsorships the same and also like sponsorship and bounties only really, really reward the top of the stack projects that people really know about log4j was a great example of a project that nobody knew about which everybody was using and t is by design trying to fix the lower rungs the nebraska projects like the xkcd comic that features the maintainer from nebraska who nobody knows is keeping the internet running so you mentioned also that you were part of the Tidelift ecosystem. You were a Tidelift developer. Do you think in T.xyz, would that be better for you or would it be about the same? Well, yeah, that's, that's the point, right? Like the project I get sponsored by Tidelift for is PromiseKit, which is this framework for iPhone that I developed about 2015, a few years after Homebrew. It was used by 100,000 apps. I'm not sure if that's still the case because uh, Apple have released some fundamental technologies that make it so you don't need the promises abstraction as much. But I haven't checked in a while. So, you know, 100,000 apps, part of the motivation behind T was uh, for years I've been saying if every one of those apps pay me just a dollar a year, then that's a good enough salary for me to not have to chase contracts or join other companies and startups. Uh, it's not a great salary, but it's a starter salary where I can then like make some other open source and maybe has a hundred thousand users, etc. Uh, so yeah, like Tidelift give me four hundred bucks a month, which is very generous, and I maintain Promise Kit as a result to a certain extent. But I haven't done a lot to it in a long time. There's a lot of things I could have done to it if it was a more of a, a money maker. This is part of the reason that we're doing T, we're building T, is that when you think about all the people like myself who've put tens of thousands of hours into open source, a homebrew alone was 10, 000, tens of thousands of hours. The whole time I was having to either take contracts and then work two jobs or save up some money and quit so that I could work on open source uh, full time because you know I like open source. I want to work on open source. It's where I feel that I've actually made a difference in this world while uh, building crappy apps for companies that are hoping to sell them for millions of dollars is really not as much of an impact on humanity at all. I need a reasonable salary for that. And T's goal is to make it so that people like myself who do make the open source that powers the internet can just make open source full time. Like, Can you imagine how much further along we'd be if everybody who's contributed to the open source could have been doing that full time? For the last 20 years that's how it should be is this the first company that you founded i've tried to found a few others years ago 2012 trying to found a music startup with a friend uh, my co-founder me and timothy have tried to found a few here and there made progress on some of them and you know it's difficult getting funding is difficult like i say if t had existed i would be using t to build t in order to fund it and uh, you know web3 does change it it makes it so you can uh, tokenize and then basically you've received investment in that respect so the future is rosier for this kind of thing i would hope that it enables more and more people to build technology that the world needs without having to chase vc money do you have any advice for entrepreneurs who want to start a business around a piece of open source software the, the truth of it is uh, you have to market what you're doing heavily Find people on Twitter or discords and push what you're working on heavily. Probably nowadays that also means making videos and being involved in more than just Twitter and GitHub because, you know, that's how I made all my open source big. Monetizing it, that was always the trickier part. And let's face it, a lot of open source that's monetized nowadays is SaaS, software as a service, and that works well. And before I figured out T, which was about eight, nine months ago now, sort of came to me in a moment of inspiration. I was trying to build a 
SAS, which was going to be an open source one, then you know that's what I do right now. If, you, if you're going to go with the Web two text, but we're hoping that T will enable entirely new ways of doing business in with open source. We don't want to change the nature of open source, but hopefully it will enable people to seriously consider it as a career, career open source communities, essentially. Well, Max, thank you for your patient answers. And I, I think that I understand Web3 a little bit better right now. And best of luck with T. And uh, where, where should we go to find out more? T.xyz is our URL. And from there, you can find our link tree, which has some references to some of the material we've published elsewhere, and find our white paper and our Discord. Discord has a dev channel. It's probably the best place if you're a dev. Also hiring. So if you're interested in changing how the internet is built, then we have a number of positions available from working on the package manager through to, uh, interestingly, uh, I'm after a bunch of TypeScript React devs. Awesome. Thank you so much, Max for being on the show. Thanks very much, Mike. If you want to hear more on the episode 57 website, I'll post additional interviews with Max and some T links. Thanks to the Glue team for helping me pull this episode together. Once again, cool graphics from Kamal Bhattacharji, music from Broke for Free, Chris Zabriskie, and Lee Rosevere. Next month, I'll talk to Avi Press, the CEO of Scarf. He has a lot of interesting thoughts around open source data and how companies can use that data to better support their communities. If you like this episode, don't forget to share it on your favorite Web2 or Web3 social media channel. Until next time, thanks for listening.